in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 16, we have a few statements of Jesus that can very much stand alone. They do have a context. Jesus there speaks much about riches. There's the parable of the steward who scatters his master's money and then behaves shrewdly. There's rebuke to the Pharisees because of their love of money. And then there are several statements by Jesus that, as I mentioned, can stand alone. One of those deals with marriage. It's just one verse, and it says that if a man divorces a woman and remarries, that he has committed adultery. Well, as I was considering this subject and considering that verse, I realized that to consider marriage from the scriptures and then the following subjects of divorce and then remarriage would require a little more time than one sermon. So we're going to take three messages here, Lord willing. Today we're going to lay a foundation and we're going to talk about marriage and what marriage is. Now, this ties in with last week's message, which was on the subject of same-sex marriage, so-called. So all of these messages are going to flow together. Last week we noted that it is extremely unloving and unholy to say, as our president said, that same-sex couples should be allowed to marry. First of all, we noted, by way of review, that there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. And here's why. When God defines something in His Word, that is the definition, universally, for all people, and at all times. And so, if somebody comes up, comes along and says, no, I'm going to redefine it to be something different than God defined it as we don't follow their definition because it's not the case. It's not the case. God created man and woman. We could redefine things, right, and say, well, there's no such thing as a male or a female. Or we could start calling men women and women men. But that doesn't make it so because God has said that it is the way that it is. Well, considering same-sex marriage, we talked about the fact, you know, it doesn't matter if it's written in every law book in the land that theft is standing in the rain with a bucket on your head. That doesn't make it theft. Because God says, thou shalt not steal, and God says theft is wrongly taking from someone something that belongs to them and does not belong to you. And so, since God has defined marriage as between man and woman, not between man and man or woman and woman, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It doesn't matter if our nation and our states, as some states have, say we're going to call this marriage and we're going to grant licenses for this in the whole nine yards. That doesn't make it married. marriage. Those people are not truly married. They're living in sin. Well, we also noted it is unloving and un unloving and unholy to declare as right that which is against God's order of things. We saw this from Genesis chapter 2, from Romans chapter 1. It is unloving and unholy to declare as right and good something that brings God's wrath down upon people as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And 
as God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. People that are characterized by unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. And amongst those sins listed, which included drunkenness and theft, was homosexuality. So, the fact of the matter is this. No matter how many arguments people throw out there that it is a violation of someone's civil rights, that it is a violation of people's needs to deny them same-sex marriage so-called, the fact of the matter is the Word of God stands true. And all those who depart from reasoning according to the Word of God enter into the realm of reasoning foolishly and into the realm of not being able to reason at all without borrowing from the biblical worldview. I know that's a complicated subject. I can recommend some resources if you want to think through this from a philosophical, apologetical uh, approach here. We're calling, this is called presuppositionalism in apologetics. If the approach that we presuppose that God's word is the truth and then the transcendental argument for all of reality and for God's truth says that anyone that steps away from reasoning biblically has fallen into foolishness and that they can't even begin to comprehend the basic things of this life without borrowing from a Christian worldview. The examples that I gave last week, you can't use words like ethics, morality, and justice without believing in the God of the Bible who provides us a standard, universal, authoritative standard of what is ethical, what is just. So, I'd love to talk with anybody that wants to about that, but we don't have time to go into that in any more detail. Over the next three messages, here's what we'll cover, Lord willing. Today we cover the subject of marriage, and we'll ask several questions about marriage. Next week we cover the subject of divorce. And then following, we'll talk about remarriage. And it's important for us to do it in this order. For us to know what divorce is, we have to know what a marriage is. For us to know when people are permitted to remarry after a divorce, we need to know what marriage is, and we need to know what the Bible says about divorce. Therefore, we cover it in this order. But today, some questions. Here's some of the things that we're going to cover today. What makes up a marriage? When does marriage begin? Is there a marriage ceremony that everybody should follow as outlined in the scriptures? Should the civil authorities regulate marriage? Are two families joined together when a couple marries, or is it just the two individuals? Can someone be forced to marry someone else? Are couples who co cohabit with one another, live with one another, are they married in God's eyes? We'll examine these and more questions today as we consider this subject. First of all, then, as we consider what constitutes a marriage, what is a marriage really at its very heart? We need to see from the scriptures that marriage 
at its heart, okay, don't miss this. This is important. You need to take this with you. If you're going to understand the following messages, you need to get this. Marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. A covenant of companionship. That's what marriage is at its very heart. Let's uh, first of all go back to the beginning again like we did last week. I had uh, one of our men mention to me last week, uh, we'll be looking at Genesis 1 and 2 here. One of our men mentioned that uh, he kind of chuckled in the middle of my sermon when I said, all right, we're going to talk about the subject of gay marriage so-called. And I said that our president had said, I had quoted him, and then I said, now let's go back to the beginning. And one of our guys had chuckled. He came up to me afterwards and he said, you know what, I wanted to let you know I wasn't mocking you or anything. He said, I just kind of laughed and thought to myself, yeah, our president needs to go back to page one of his Bible and start reading. <laughs> go back to page one. Go back to the very beginning and start right there. So again, we're going to go back right to the very beginning. Consider Genesis chapter 1 and 2, because here we see the first marriage. And we see a declaration about what marriage is in Genesis chapter 2 in particular. But first of all, Genesis 1, and the creation of mankind, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So when it says man there, it's talking about mankind, humankind. It's not talking about the male of the species. Because notice the plural then that follows. Let us give them dominion. Okay? And then it goes on to say, dominion over the birds of the air and the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, mankind, in his own image. Both men and women bear the image of God. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now turn the page, if you have to in your Bible, to chapter 2. And begin with verse 18. After each day of the creation, God had seen what he had created, and he said, it is good, right? Here's the first time where we see God say, it is not good. And what did he say it's not good about? It is not good that man should be alone. General principle of scripture. As a general rule, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is comparable to him. This is the broadest statement of value regarding marriage in all the scriptures. Because as we see, here in chapter 2, God creates Eve out of the rib of Adam, and they are married together. So, when he said it's not good that man will be alone, and he makes a helper that's comparable to the man, the male, we see the first marriage taking place there. So, it's not good that man should be alone, but it is good for marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It is created by God. It is defined by God. It is good. It is 
generally to be engaged in. Now, the scriptures do teach, we're not going to go into any detail on this, the scriptures do teach that there are some which God has gifted with the ability to remain single and not to be married. But that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is, the norm is, it is not good that man should be alone. This, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church has done, in that they have elevated celibacy to a level where it becomes more virtuous than being in a marriage relationship. And that's simply not biblically grounded. The Apostle Paul, yes, in 1 Corinthians, does talk about in specific situations that it's best not to marry. But he was addressing a situation where the people were being persecuted in the church. So unusual circumstances and severe circumstances, and he's talking in the context of those circumstances. But, as a general statement, the broad statement of the value of marriage, it is not good that man should be alone. And it says in the Proverbs that the man who finds a wife finds a good thing. <laughs> finds a good thing. And uh, I know I can echo that. I can say amen to that. <laughs> well, what was the deal here? The fact of the matter is the guy flat out needed help. Alright, guys, hey, it's okay to admit it. We need help. And it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask for directions if we're lost, alright? We need help. God knew it, even if Adam wouldn't admit it, that he was sinless back then, so he was admitting it, that he needs help. And, so, God creates here... God had created the animals. We saw that from chapter 1. But he brings all these animals to Adam. Adam names them, but you know what? There's not a helper that is comparable to Adam from all the animals. And when we talk about helper comparable, in the King James Version, it uses the word helpmeet there. Now, what we need to realize is that's actually two words in the Hebrew language. Okay? Helpmeet is a, in the English is a compound word. What does it mean? It means a helper that is fitting or suitable for someone. In the Hebrew language, the word those two words combined literally mean a helper that is comparable to, a helper that corresponds to. So, the woman was to be a helper that was comparable, compatible, corresponded with the man. None of the animals cut it. Alright? Regardless of that statement that a dog is a man's best friend, it doesn't cut it. <laughs> the woman was created to be that helper comparable. Back in uh, my dad's early pastoring days, the phone rang. I think mom answered the phone and there was a dear little old lady and she just blurted out right off the bat, where does it say in the Bible that a dog is a man's best friend? <laughs> well, the fact of the matter, it doesn't. The man's best friend is the woman that he is married to if he is married. That is his best friend. It's to be his best friend. We're going to talk about this. If that's not his best friend, then he needs to get his tail in gear and start developing that friendship. 
because that's to be the primary relationship and we'll talk about that in just a moment. A helper comparable. And then what happens? God actually forms Eve from the very rib, the very person of Adam. You can't get much more compatible than that. <laughs> comparable than that. Matthew Henry has some beautiful words to say about this. Now, he might be taking it a little farther than was intended in the inspired text, but I think these words are true, and they're very beautiful, so let's consider them. He says of this, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. He continues, Adam lost a rib, and without any diminution to his strength or comeliness, for doubtless the flesh was closed without a scar. But in lieu thereof, he had a help, meat, or fitting for him, which abundantly made up his loss. What God takes away from his people, he will, one way or another, restore with advantage. In this, as in many other things, Adam was a figure of him that was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross, in order to which his side was opened, and there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. We see then in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2 that after God creates the woman, he takes the woman to the man and presents her to the man. And then Adam says these words in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we have these inspired words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam here covenanted with Eve. Eve was brought to him. Eve desired, no doubt, it is inferred in the text, to be the companion of Adam. This was her created purpose. Adam says, This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. They were joined together in a covenant, a pledge, an agreement to one another. And then we see these essential elements of the marriage here spoken of. In verse 24, A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife or cleave to his wife, we'll say cleave, leave, cleave, and they too shall become one flesh. The leaving that takes place when a man and a woman covenant together in marriage, they are leaving their parents, all other people, as their primary relationship 
they're leaving the authority of their parents in any way, shape, or form if they were still in their parents' home and under the authority of their parents. So they're leaving the parents' authority, care, immediate oversight, and then they are joining to one another. Now, consider for just a moment. I've heard it said that when two people are married, two families are joined together. Now, in one sense, that's very true, practically speaking. Practically speaking, when you get married to someone else, if they've got family members, you're probably going to be in contact with those family members. And so in that sense, you're joined together. But we need to make a theological distinction. Biblically, theologically, there is no official joining together of two families when a man and a woman wed. When a man and a woman wed, biblically, they are leaving their families. And when they join with one another, they become their own individual family units. And they have left all authority, immediate oversight, and care and provision of their, their parents. So, scripturally speaking, what this looks like is children are always to honor their parents. That does not go away. It doesn't matter if you're 70 and your dad is 90, you're still supposed to honor your dad. That means you're to be respectful to him. You're to give him proper reverence, respect. But, that man is not under the authority of that father. When a man becomes of age, he leaves his parents. And when he leaves, he is under his own authority. And when he is married together, those two have just created their own family units, and the man is the head of his wife, and there's that new authority structure that takes place. A new family is born. Okay? We need to understand that scripturally. Just one key. I'll just throw this out here and then we'll move on. We have to be careful when we look at the scriptures to determine what the Bible is teaching, not just what was cultural during the time that the Bible was written. Oftentimes, people enforce the culture of the scriptures rather than looking at exactly what was commanded in the scriptures. So there may have been a culture early on in the scriptures when families dwelled very closely together. And that's fine. There are cultures today where families are very close-knit. So you have extended families and parents and whatnot. And, and uh, children and grandchildren, they're all very closely knit. And perhaps even uh, sharing the same large piece of property or even sharing the same home. And that's fine. That can be a good and a helpful thing. But, just because that's cultural, it does not mean that today there's this uh, patriarchy where the grandfather is the authority over all of his sons and over all of their wives and over all of his grandsons and over all of their wives and that he is the one to be obeyed. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's a leaving that takes place and that that new family structure is there 
It's a leaving of the authority structure. Okay. We move on from there. That cleaving, then, the new family is formed. The husband and wife covenant together. They pledge to honor, cherish, dwell together, love one another more than any other human being for as long as they both shall live. That should be a part of that covenant. That cleaving means the spouse becomes the primary relationship in all this world. Because it goes on, it says here, that those two become one flesh. Children are not one flesh with their parents, biblically speaking. Children will leave. And many of them, if not most of them, will cleave unto their own spouse and they will start their own family structure. The closest human relationship on this earth is between a husband and his wife. There is no other relationship that is closer. Can you see how important it is then to develop that in our marriages? To live like it. That is the, the case. But this is the closest relationship. These two having become one flesh. But, most of the greatest problems in marriages flow out of a failure in our thinking to leave clean to the spouse. You can think about how that can be the case, right? Across the board, an example that comes to mind usually, first of all, is the woman who does not leave her mother. And so, even though she's married, and she has left in the biblical sense, because for a marriage to take place, there is a leaving, in her mind, she has not left, and so whenever anything goes a little bit wrong, she runs back to mama and cries to mama and then mama steps in and that causes a bunch of problems but you know what it's not just the mother-in-law of the man but there are plenty of guys today that are going and crying to mama when they have problems with their spouse spouses that sure happens my brother Ben and I okay, we're in lawn care business and you know we're mowing uh, we're mowing grass and we take on this new job and we mow it for two weeks and then we show up one day and the lady says, oh, I'm not going to have you mow anymore. She said, uh, my son got in an argument with his wife and so he's moving back in with me. So the son was having problems with the wife so he ran to mom to take care of things. You see, he hadn't really left in his mind, had he? He wasn't recognizing this is my primary relationship and I, I've got to work this out. So that leaving and then that cleaving together, developing that relationship by way of practical application, so essential for married couples to, to develop that relationship, to develop it, to strengthen it, to work on it, to talk with one another about each other's needs. All of those things we've been learning about in Sunday school class, putting those into practice, right? Cleaving to one's spouse. This happens when one is married, one has left, one is joined together, one does become one flesh, but then we have to think that way and approach that in a biblical way.
Well, I've said that marriage is what? What was that primary word that I used? It's a covenant, right? A covenant. Let's look at two other passages of Scripture. Remember these two regarding marriage as a covenant. Remember the twos. The two shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2. All of these speak about marriage and they describe for us covenanting that a man and a woman, the two, shall join together, become one flesh. First of all, let's jump to Malachi chapter 2 and then back to Proverbs chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, and we'll begin with verse 14. In Malachi, the people of Israel, particularly the priests, are being rebuked by God. And one of the rebukes that's thrown against them we will see in verse 15. Let's start with verse 14 of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion. Remember I said marriage is a covenant of companionship. But did he not make them one? Oh, excuse me. At the end of verse 14. With whom you have dealt treacherously. Yes, she is your companion. And notice this. She is your wife by covenant. What makes someone a wife? It is a covenant. It is that two people have pledged themselves one to another officially that they will be spouses, that they will honor, cherish one another, dwell with one another. And it should be a pledge as as long as we live, as long as you are alive, I'm going to be faithful to you. And I will not marry another. I will not divorce you. And we'll talk about, though, some specific instances where divorce can be permitted. But the pledge always should be, I am going to be faithful to you. And I'm going to stick with you. Okay, young people, consider this, please. This needs to be drilled into your minds. That when you get married, and when you covenant with another person, if that's what the Lord has called you to, that you go into that relationship saying divorce is not on the table as an option. I'm not even going to consider beginning this marriage, even in the farthest recesses of my mind, that, well, if things don't work out, then I'll just get a divorce and I can find somebody else. No. No. It's not on the table, not an option. Don't ever consider it as such. The scriptures say God hates divorce. God's design is for a man and a woman to be married together, covenanted for life. For life. Until one passes away, then of course freedom to remarry after that. But we must go into it prepared to stick it out through thick and thin to make things work. But it is a marriage by covenant, right? And she is your companion. Look over at Proverbs chapter 2. Remember this, the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, 
Proverbs 2, Malachi 2. The test will be next Sunday. It's pass or fail. I'll ask that one question. If you get it, you pass. If not, you fail. And then we'll talk about the consequences after that. Proverbs chapter 2, and look at verses 16 and 17. A father speaking to his son here, saying, Receive my words, treasure my commands, get wisdom, and this will guard you then. In verse 16, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, and notice this, who forsakes the companion of her youth. Her spouse, the companion of her youth. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. And what forgets the covenant of her God? How does she forget the covenant of her God? By forsaking the companion of her youth, by violating that covenant through sexual immorality. So, marriage is a covenant. It's a pledging between a man and a woman. Both the man and the woman must pledge themselves one to another. Proverbs tells us here that a woman can break the covenant. Malachi tells us that a man can break the covenant. The implication is that the woman must covenant and the man must covenant. So, can someone be forced to marry against their will? The answer is, if they do not covenant with the other person then they are not married and they are being violated some of you may have seen the movie Princess Bride kind of a goofy movie but in that movie there's this wicked prince Humperdinck right and this beautiful woman Buttercup and through a long series of events and whatnot, you know uh Wesley, Buttercup's beloved, you know, ends up going missing, and Humperdinck wants Buttercup to marry him. Anyway, she finds out that Wesley's still alive, doesn't want to marry Humperdinck. He's, you know, she's basically dragged in before this priest and this mock wedding ceremony, and Humperdinck just wants the priest to jump it in just say man and wife he says just say man and wife and so the priest says man and wife and then off they go anyway Buttercup is rescued from wicked Prince Humperdinck and you know on and on it goes anyway then she says to Wesley well you know I kind of got married I, you know, I, I didn't want to but it just kind of happened and then he asked her this he said did you say I do she said well no we kind of skipped that part and then he said, well, then you're not married. You didn't say, I do, you're not married. Well, here's the fact of the matter. Since marriage is a covenanting between the man and the woman, if one of them is being dragged in and there's a ceremony held that she does not covenant, then she's not married. And anything that happens after that, she is being abused and violated, and she is innocent, but the man is guilty. You see? So, marriage is a covenanting. So, some of these arranged marriages where a girl is forced to marry, if she protests and if she refuses to covenant, then she is not truly married. 
because a marriage is this covenant between a man and a woman. It can be broken by either one, and they both must consent for it to be entered into. Let's talk about marriage ceremonies for a minute. Does the Bible outline any particular ceremony that must be followed for someone to be truly covenanted? I think the answer is no. No, we, we don't see any set marriage ceremony that's proclaimed and it says, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have these pledges, these vows, exchange these things. It's supposed to last this long. It's supposed to be officiated in this way. We don't have those kind of details. We have historical examples, you know, with, with, with some of them. It, it's like, uh, okay, you know, she was brought to him and they entered into the tent and they became man and wife. Uh, in other instances, you know, there's celebrations and we'll see, you know, several days where there's feasting and whatnot carried on, like in the instance of, you know, Samson and whatnot. Um, but there's no uniform, specific ceremony that is proclaimed as normative or necessary for all people to follow. So what does that mean? Well, since marriage is essentially a covenant, then the key element is the official pledging of the man and the woman to one another. That's the key element of a marriage, is that they are pledging themselves to one another. They're recognizing that's what's being done. I'm pledging that you will be my spouse, we will join together. And I think that it is very appropriate and proper that that be officially witnessed and officially documented. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. Considering documentation, I think it's very, very helpful and very important that there be official documentation. Let me read this from a Bible dictionary, speaking about documentation in marriage and documentation in general of covenants or agreements that were put forth in ancient times. It was common practice to set up a stella or stone as a sign that a treaty had been established between two households or nations, like with Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31. On both sides, appeal is made to the deity as a witness, showing that the covenant is unalterable. Moreover, as in the case at Sinai, Jacob and Laban offered a sacrifice in the mountain and shared a common meal. Other signs which sealed such a treaty were used, such as a marriage between two royal houses, but the greatest tool for covenant-making came to be the written document on which the words of the covenant, its terms in the form of promises and stipulations, were spelled out, witnessed to, signed, and sealed. And one comment, comment today, or commentator excuse me, notes, there is no firmer guarantee of legal security, peace, or personal loyalty than the covenant. So you see where I'm going with this? How about a marriage license? As official documentation that these two persons have covenanted with one another officially in the presence of witnesses that they will be man and wife. Considering this and considering our nation and what is required in the various states regarding marriage, I think it is both biblically permissible and very helpful 
for the civil authorities in a nation to officially define marriage as between one man and one woman and to require official witnessed documentation of the covenanting in marriage of a man and a woman. I think it's both biblical and it is both good and profitable in a nation for this to be done. God defines marriage. The civil authorities ought to define it accordingly. They can't step in and say two guys can covenant with one another and we'll call that a marriage. That ought not to be done. Right? God has commissioned the civil authorities to rule for the good of those under their authority. And I would propose that it is for the good of society that there be official recognition of marriages by the civil authorities in the form of marriage licenses. As a matter of fact, I would say this. When they define marriage as between one man and one woman, and when they prescribe that no one is to be considered married in this nation who does not have an officially witnessed, signed, and registered marriage license, not only are our rulers promoting the biblical ideal of monogamy, but they are also serving as ministers for the good of all society. Can you think of any reasons why it would be for the good of society, for the civil authorities, to document the covenants that are made in marriage and for that to be officially recognized? Consider some of these. One, it promotes the significance of covenanting in marriage by making it an official legal action to marry or divorce, right? That makes it just a little bit more significant than going to, going to the grocery store and buying a Coke or meeting up for friends to watch a baseball game. If it's officially legally documented that this is what's happened. It also makes divorce more difficult because of the legal proceedings and ramifications, right? Somebody can't just look at their spouse one day and say, I divorce you, and they're divorced, and that's it. No, they have to go through a legal process that is going to be somewhat complicated, far less complicated than it used to be, <laughs> but complicated nonetheless. You know, there's certain... Uh, Cultures where all it takes for somebody to divorce is for the man to stand facing a certain direction and to say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And that's it. And the woman's out to drop. I think it's very helpful that it's officially recognized and legally documented and protected by law. It also helps to protect women from lewd men who would covenant with them at night and then leave them in the morning after getting what they really wanted. Do you realize there's there certain Muslim cultures that have such a high view of marriage that they will not go into a prostitute without marrying her. And then they go ahead and divorce her when they leave. They really do that. They go in, they'll pledge themselves to her, say, I marry you. They'll have their way with her. And then when they leave, they say, I divorce you. And they consider that official. And it's recognized by the religious leaders and everything. You see, such... Regulation with official licensing like we have, that protects from that type of abuse taking place. It also helps to protect women by promoting the husband's responsibility towards his wife. It also helps protect 
women from men who would impregnate them and then leave them to provide for the children. Because no, hey, you're married. We have documentation you were married. You've got to look after them. It helps provide husbands or promote husbands staying with their wives and living with and providing for their children. We're going to talk about how it does this in just a moment. And then what about this? Simply, it helps avoid the confusion of knowing whom is truly married to whom. If there's no official legal documentation, then somebody could walk up to you and say, hey, I'm married to you. And you could say, no, I'm not married to you. Yes, I am. No, no, you're not. And then you take it to court, but how do you know? You see the confusion it could lead to. And how about visitation rights and all those types of things at hospitals and, and spousal benefits and all that? You see the confusion if there's no official recognition of who's married to whom. Anyway, um, Wayne Grudem in his book on politics and the Bible promotes this as well. And mentions many of these reasons that I have given. Okay, let's talk for just a couple minutes then in closing. After we've considered now what marriage is, that it's a covenant of companionship. We've seen these passages of Scripture which speak about it being a covenant. We've answered a few of our questions. Let's consider now for just a moment the issue of cohabitation. Namely, and in this context I'm talking about a man and a woman living alone with one another both are of eligible age and they're not marrying but they're considering one another to be husband and wife or they're simply saying we want to have a committed relationship or whatever it may be but we're not actually going to get officially married to one another Let's consider this in light of everything that we've talked about. First of all, we need to realize that opposite-sex couples who live together but have not covenanted together are not truly married. Right? Since biblically speaking, marriage is a covenant, it doesn't matter how long they live with one another, if they haven't actually covenanted with one another, they're not truly married. Okay? So I'm saying here that I don't think that common law marriages are biblical if there has not been an actual covenanting that's taken place where these two have pledged themselves to one another. Such couples who live together in the United States without an official marriage license recognized by their state are in violation of the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law says that the state will not recognize as married anyone who has not been officially married and licensed in marriage. I think the state has that right to proclaim that because they're working within the bounds of what God has permitted them. They're doing this for the good of society, as I have mentioned. And God said that it is to be a man and a woman, so if they're proclaiming that, they're doing that properly. Therefore, I would tell anyone who's living together, and they say, well, we've, we've pledged ourselves to one another, but we don't think that for whatever reason we should actually go and make it official and get a marriage license. I will tell them, go get married. I don't think you're married. You need to actually go 
and be married and obey the authorities in the spirit of the law and do that which is best for you and for society. Make this official. I would counsel them that or I would counsel you guys need to separate depending on numerous circumstances. Is one of them a Christian and the other not a Christian? I'll never counsel a non-Christian to marry a Christian no matter what. The Bible says they're not to do that. So many different circumstances there. So God has granted the state the authority to require licensing. It's in the best interest of society. So if someone says that they're married in God's eyes, but they refuse to make it official, I think they're actually fooling themselves. God does not recognize marriages that mock the authorities that he has established and ultimately then mock his authority, you see. And for someone to say, I am married, but I refuse to obey, in this instance, they're living in the spirit of rebellion. They have no biblical case to resist the civil authorities in this matter. Even though they may not be breaking the letter of the law, they're most definitely breaking the spirit of the law. What are some of the reasons that you've heard that people have given for living together but not actually getting married? Here's some things that I've heard. Divorce is messy. There are lots of legal battles and property is going to be divided up and divorce is just so messy that we're not, even, we're not even going to get married, we're not even going to mess with that. If somebody tells you that, and then they tell you at the same time that they're fully committed to the person that they're living with, are you going to believe them? Does that ring true? <laughs> no, that rings pretty hollow, doesn't it? Well, you know, divorces are so messy and all the legal hassles and whatnot, so we're not going to get married, but we're committed to each other. Uh, yeah, right. You're thinking about divorce right now, and you're thinking, I'm not actually going to marry this person because there's a distinct possibility that we may divorce in the future, or they may be thinking, hey, I want the easy out of this relationship if it doesn't work out exactly the way I want it to work out, and I don't want there to be any consequences to me. You see, that's a cop-out. It's showing that there's not true commitment there. What about this? There are instances where people do it for financial reasons, right? What about uh, instances where someone has a spouse who dies, they're getting Social Security for that spouse. If they officially remarry, they're not going to get Social Security any longer. And so they say, well, we're married in God's eyes, and sometimes they even go and have a ceremony in a church, but they do not actually legally do that which is required by law to be considered married. There's actually a, a church locally that I know of where the pastor will tell people in that type of situation, he'll say, I'll tell you what, he said, I won't marry you unless you have the marriage license with you, but whether you go and file it is up to you. You see, if they don't file it, then it's not officially recognized, is it? They can then keep getting Social Security for the deceased spouse while believing themselves to be married to the person they're with right now. Does that not smack of deception? 
And does that not seem to flow from greed and a desire for money more than a desire to be officially recognized as married and to comply with the spirit of the law? How about this? Have you ever had anybody tell you, well, we want to test drive our relationship to see if it's going to work before we actually get married? I've, I've had people tell me that. I had a guy tell me that when I was doing construction. You know, he said that he said he would never, he's like, I can't believe anybody would ever get married without going to bed with a girl first to test drive their relationship. That's the way people think these days. It's the way the world thinks. But this approach, besides being ungodly, leads to many problems. Here's some statistics. I'm not a big statistics guy, but I think these can be helpful. How does cohabitation differ from marriage in the statistics? First of all, living together leads to living alone. In the mid-1960s, only 5% of single women lived with a man before getting married. Just 5%. By the 1990s, According to this statistic, about 70% did so. Some people think that living together will lead automatically to marriage, but that often is not the case. Many cohabitations break up. For many other couples, cohabitation is viewed as an alternative to marriage rather than a preparation for it. However, this alternative is less likely than marriage to lead to a long-term stable commitment. And again, with cohabitation, just so we're clear on this, I'm talking about, I'm talking about a a man living with a woman and primarily the two of them living alone together and most of the time that's going to be living alone together with some type of sexual relationship between the two of them. Stability. The statistics say that cohabiting relationships are fragile. They're always more likely to break up than marriages regardless of age or income. On average, cohabitations last less than two years before breaking up or converting to marriage. Less than 4% of cohabitations last for 10 years or more. Cohabitation also influences later marriages. The more often and the longer that men and women cohabit, the more likely they are to divorce later on. So it doesn't prepare people for marriage. It doesn't help them to develop a relationship. It actually leads to it being more likely that they're going to divorce if they ever do marry down the road. Cheating. Both men and women in cohabiting relationships are more likely to be unfaithful to their partners than married people are. Health. Cohabitants have more health problems than married people, probably because cohabitants put up with behavior, behavior in their partners, which husbands and wives would discourage of their partners such as alcohol and substance abuse. Domestic violence. Women in cohabiting relationships are more likely than wives to be abused. In one study, marital status was the strongest predictor of abuse ahead of race, age, education, or housing conditions. Children born in 1997 likely to live their entire childhood with both natural parents. It is more likely 70% of children living their entire childhood with their parents, 70% if the parents are married, 
just 36% if the parents are cohabiting but not actually married. So it affects the children as well. It affects the children as well. As we wrap up this study then, we need to consider what it, as I've already said, you know, it's a, a man and a woman, they're living alone together. And what if they say, well, but we don't have any type of physical relationship with one another, no type of sexual relationship with one another. So, it's okay, this is just an arrangement for convenience sake that we're going to live together. I'm not talking about uh, a 70-year-old brother and sister living together. I'm talking about people pretty close to the same age, man and a woman, not related to one another. But there's a story that's been told. Young man and young woman and they move in together and the mom strongly disapproves and she talks to her son about it and he says oh mom it's okay you know we're just living together but there's no physical relationship you know nothing going on no problem well they invite the mom over for dinner and at dinner they the woman a uh, young woman brings out all the best china and you know the finest uh serving utensils and amongst those utensils is a, a soup ladle an heirloom something that was passed on to her by her mother and by her grandmother to her mother and the mother of the son admires that soup ladle while she's there and is talking about it and how beautiful it is but then they have their visit supper's over the mother leaves and they start putting away the dishes and the soup ladle is gone Well, they talk about it. Could it be lost? What happened to it? They turn the house upside down, basically. They don't find it. They say, the only thing that could have happened, the guy says, is my mom had to have taken it. You know, it was here when she was here, and then it's gone afterwards. She must have taken it. So, finally, he gets up the nerve to call her, and he says, Mom, did you take the soup ladle? Now, this was an heirloom, you know, if you just return it, you know, no hard feelings, you know, we just would like to get it back. And long and short of it is, then she says, Son, go look in your bed. You see, the son and the woman had said, we're living in separate rooms. She has her room and I have my room and whatnot. Son, go look in your bed. So he went and looked, and there under the covers was the soup ladle. The mom had taken it, put it back in the bedroom, and obviously it proved that these two weren't telling the truth in that instance. Here's the point with that. First of all, if it's a man and a woman, they're living together alone, it's not very likely that they're going to be chased in that relationship. That's not very likely. They're living alone in that setting. They're sharing the house alone. They're living in the same space. It's not very likely they're going to be chased. But I'm not saying that so that you should then start doubting 
anybody that says no, there's nothing going on like that. Because we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. But as a, a biblical counselor, I'd be sitting down and asking, you know, is this, are you guys behaving yourself? <laughs> because it's not real likely that that's going to be the case. But even if someone is saying, okay, it is the case, and we are behaving our, our, ourselves, here's what I would say about this whole subject. That which we do teaches, doesn't it? It teaches. We are role models whether we want to be or not. Remember the big crack with the pro athletes? They're all saying, hey, we're not role models. The fact of the matter is you are role models. There are young people looking up to you. And they're learning from your behavior. We're all role models. What we do teaches. And with more and more people abandoning the concept of biblical marriage and more and more people cohabiting before marriage, that is teaching the younger generations more and more that this is acceptable. And so even if somebody is saying, well, we're not misbehaving ourselves sexually, there still has to be considered, what are we teaching by doing this? By the two of us living alone in this house, what are we teaching? You know, we live in a society where hardly anything is sacred anymore. Isn't that right? All of the boundaries are being broken down. There's hardly anything that's sacred. Parenthood isn't sacred anymore. Parents are just abandoning their kids to fend for themselves. It's not sacred anymore. It's not being looked at biblically that I have brought this child in the world and it is my duty before God to take care of this child until this child is able to take care of themselves. It's not sacred. We've broken down that boundary. Fatherhood is not sacred. Fathers are not honored and respected as they ought to be in our society. Just watch Disney cartoons. When's the last time you've seen a Disney cartoon where the dad was the hero? He was intelligent. He had a good relationship with his children and a good relationship with his wife and was respected and looked up to by all of them. Usually the dad is mocked, right? He's a buffoon. He's an idiot. He's got a bad relationship with his kids, the whole nine yards. What I'm saying regarding cohabitation, it used to be considered sacred and reserved for marriage that men and women would live together alone only when they were married. And now that's been broken down. And in essence, then, it does end up devaluing marriage when this is continuing to take place. So, even though, biblically speaking, it cannot be forbidden that a couple live together alone, being unmarried, for all of these reasons, I think at very best it's unwise. So marriage is a covenant of companionship in which a man and a woman eligible to marry have left the authority of their parents, have joined to one another, pledging themselves to one another officially 
according to the ceremony or licensing procedure rightly established, they thus become one flesh. A new family has been formed, and they are to develop their relationship and live in a way that is honoring to the God who has established marriage. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for what we can see about marriage from your word. I pray, Father, that you will work in our land to help people to consider sacred once again the institution of marriage which you have ordained and which you regulate. I pray, Father, that you will work in our hearts and lives to help us to guard ourselves from evil and to love that which is true and right. And pray, Father, for your blessing upon the preaching of your word this day and ask that you would be glorified in all our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.